This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, thanks to member support. Stay tuned to learn more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Reformation was in fact all that was best in the medieval church, correcting all that was worst. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined by my co-host James Dolezal, and we have with us uh, a guest from from Scotland who is phoning in after much uh, difficulty in getting on the line. He's phoning in for us. He is the minister at uh, Inverness Reformed Baptist Church and also is a a lecturer at Highland Theological College. He's written a number of books on church history, including a a currently four-volume set of of books surveying church history called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. So, Nick Needham, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Nick, I wanted to start out with a question about church history and the value of studying it. Yeah. A lot of times when this is when the, the subject is approached uh, in, in various Christian circles, the idea is that we will, we will learn from the examples of the past, uh, you know, these great heroes of the past. And certainly oh, that's, right. that's yeah. part of it. But I wonder if you could um, expand beyond that. What do we gain from studying church history beyond just inspiration from faithful saints? Okay, well, what I, what I did was I, I thought back to my own experience of studying church history and what, what it was that motivated me. And uh, there are several things that came to mind. Um, perhaps the first one is understanding how we got to be where we are now, today. And let me give you, it's a kind of a a laughable example in a way, um, but quite a pertinent one, which is that when I was converted too long ago to even mention when that was, but uh, when I I came to Christ, I did not know the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. So that required me to, to dig around a bit and find out, well, you know, what is the difference between these two bodies, these two communions? And should I be a Roman Catholic or, or should I be a Protestant? And then, of course, when you study Protestantism, uh, the historic sources of Protestantism, uh, you then immediately discover, well, um, back in the, the classical age, the golden age of Protestantism, there were actually two distinct forms of Protestantism. There was Lutheran and Reformed or Calvinist. So, uh, which of these two should I belong to? And then when you think a little bit further and study a little bit further, Arminianism comes onto the scene historically. Well, you know, am I a Calvinist or am I an Arminian? So I think the first benefit of studying church history is gaining an understanding of how we today came to be who we are and what we are. Nick, I want to ask a question with regard to the health of the modern church. We live in a, I think C.S. Lewis described the 20th century man as as one uh, who succumbed to chronological snobbery, sort of yes, down his... I've used that phrase often, yes. Look down his nose at the past. The old is the outmoded. Uh, you have written four volumes so far through 1750. Um 
1750 just when things began to um, sort of get updated and get fresh? Why are we, why are we, look, is there, is there something um, vital for the health of the modern church in considering uh, the, the doctrinal debates and ecclesiastical uh, discussions and expansions of the early medieval uh, yes. Puritan era church? Yeah, well, if you look at the, the evangelical heroes of the 18th century, men like Whitfield and Wesley, um, they didn't regard themselves as being pure novelties. They themselves were rooted and grounded in the past. So if you take Wesley as an example, he had uh, an enterprise, the Christian Library, where he reprinted lots of the old classics. I think there were 50 volumes. Um, that figure might not be right, but there were many, many volumes in the Christian Library. And if you look at that library, you certainly find the early church fathers represented there. You certainly find the Protestant reformers there. And you find the Puritans represented uh, from the 17th century. Uh, so uh, certainly Wesley believed that there was a lot to learn from the past in terms of spiritual nourishment, which was the aim of the Christian library. And Whitfield himself, um, he was converted uh, and in his early days uh, nurtured in the faith by, by reading the, the Puritan classics, things like, um, like uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. So even if you take the men of the 18th century and, and take them as some kind of beginning, you actually find that they are looking back to the past. So it's a little different. In science, we have sort of the what we now call the Enlightenment. Uh, and the yeah. idea is that the past was wrong and we're right. Um, Aristotelian physics won't put a man on the moon, but Newtonian physics will help. Uh, yeah. And yet in theology, the 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 faithful preachers of that era uh, don't have the same view of right. church history the way that, say, their contemporary peers in science might have had of the scientific endeavors maybe before Boyle. Indeed. That's because um, whichever century in church history you take, we're all coming to the same ultimate source, which is Holy Scripture. And one century, I think, should not be privileged over another in terms of engaging with Scripture and trying to, to dig into its truths and insights. Uh, just after my conversion, I became aware somehow, I don't know how, it's lost in the mists of history, that the whole church, Catholic, small c, was building on the foundation of what the early church fathers taught in the realm of Trinity and Christology. So I began to read what the fathers taught about the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the person of Christ. I did that largely through Henry Bettinson's two volumes, um, the, early, the earlier Christian fathers and the later Christian fathers. I think I read all of those. Uh, and that gave me a tremendous and extremely helpful grounding in understanding truths which the whole church confessed as having been hammered out in those times. I was going to ask then, how, how, and you sort of answered my question, how can, can church history help keep us from error? Um, is there something e even pre-reformational um, that that serves us well the health of the church today? And you mentioned too the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ. Yes, yes that's a difficult one, isn't it? I'm not sure anything is guaranteed to preserve us from from, from error, um, but certainly we can be helped um, 
by studying the, the, the giants of the past. And uh, did you mention the medieval period there? Because uh, again, if you, go, if you go to the reformers, Luther and Calvin, uh, they certainly had some medieval heroes, particularly Bernard of Clairvaux, to whom they looked for their understanding of the doctrine of grace. So it's not as if the Reformation itself was cut off from, from the medieval period. I think in particular, you devote your first two volumes to the early church and to the medieval period. What That's value, right. maybe, maybe you could say something briefly uh, about what value the study of that era has for Protestants. I think Protestants tend to think October 31st, uh, <laughs> you know, the Martin Luther, the church door in Wittenberg, 1517. That was really, you know, it was the Apostle Paul and then a lot of no names in between and then Martin Luther. Um, how, how do those yeah. two volumes serve? evangelicals who need to understand the pre-reformational church well again just to make the point that the reformers themselves did not see it that way um they looked back for doctrinal help and moral and spiritual inspiration certainly to the early church fathers and also to some figures in the medieval period um figures like anselm of canterbury figures like bernard of clairvaux and once the process of systematizing Protestant theology got underway, uh, the great systematicians increasingly looked to Thomas Aquinas for help. So there isn't this great gulf between the Reformation and what went before. And I always like that statement. I can never remember who said it. It may have been John Williamson Nevin, and it may have been Philip Schaff, um, that the Reformation was in fact all that was best in the medieval church, correcting all that was worst in the medieval church. And I think that's a much more accurate and historical way of understanding it. And if we ourselves can get hold of, of good translations of the great figures to whom the reformers looked back for help, I think we will find ourselves being instructed and edified as they were. And in those two um, volumes, where I look at the early church and the medieval period, one of the things I'm trying to do is just to persuade people uh, that you know Christ was not absent in the first 1,500 years of the story of his church, um, which once you think about it, uh, it's a rather strange proposition really, isn't it? That, um, that the Lord Jesus Christ was absent for the first one and a half thousand years of the history of his own people. Nick, I've used that quote, the best features of Western Christianity critiquing uh, the worst mm. ones, but I always attributed it to you. I thought I read those in your <laughs> volumes, so now I need to go back and footnote it more carefully. Um, I'm pretty sure I got that from somebody else. Well, uh, I, you know, I, I wondered, you mentioned some some of the, the, the giants in, in the faith uh, who in, in some respects help us or serve as guides to keep us from yes. from gross error, I, this is I I suppose a somewhat personal question. But as you have studied and even written these volumes, who who are some of the the figures who have emerged in, in your mind as the, as the the luminaries or or and and perhaps were there surprises there? Were there ones yeah. uh, about whom you had very little knowledge going in and now really consider uh, highly significant? Well, if I can begin with the unsurprising ones. And there would be Augustine of Hippo. I can remember just one year, literally one year after my conversion, uh, I was on a holiday on the coast of Kent in England. And 
for my holiday reading, I had Augustine's Confessions. And that book just electrified me. Here was a man who evidently knew his God with a reverential intimacy, uh, millions of light years beyond anything I'd ever experienced. So I've always looked upon Augustine from that point onwards as being one of my uh, mentors from the past. Certainly Luther and Calvin, I admire them both. And I think each of them has strengths, each of them has weaknesses, but they are luminaries in the history of the church. Uh, but again, they're obvious ones, I suppose. Um, you asked about surprising ones. Some of the early church fathers I discovered to be men of deep spirituality, which I hadn't expected them to be for some reason. And if I can mention a few of those, certainly uh, Cyprian of Carthage, um, the account he gives, I think it's in his first epistle of his conversion, I think is second only to the account Augustine gives of his conversion in the Confessions uh, among the spiritual literature of the early church period, uh, so certainly Cyprian. And another quite surprising one, because he's very often written off as a, a mere controversialist whom we should actually steer clear of, uh, Cyril of Alexandria. I found some of his writings to be extremely helpful, some of his commentaries, for example. And you can, if you search around on the internet, you can certainly find some of this, this material. His commentary on Luke, I think, is out there somewhere. Very helpful stuff. My undergraduates are reading Cyril on the Unity of Christ this semester, so I'm glad you said Cyril. <laughs> well, you can, you can say they're reading uh, um, one of the luminaries of the church. Okay, you had a few personality problems, but we all have those, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, at the beginning of Volume 3, uh, you talk about the character of the era, and, and you say this, we may also find that this life, so fresh, boisterous, and daring, has much to give us today. And then you compare it to our own day in our own comparative jadedness and superficiality. I'm wondering if you, you know, if there are other ways in which your study of the past has illumined and, and you know, perhaps unfortunately put our own age in, in, a, in a bad light in these ways. In other words, are there features of the church of our day that, just stand in sharp contrast to what we see when we look to the past? Well, maybe there are. I don't, I don't want to put myself in some kind of position of being the, the great censor, you know, of the modern church. Um, but again, if I can just give you a purely personal example. Uh, at the moment, I'm trying to write up uh, the opening chapters of my fifth volume where I'm going to be dealing, of course, with the evangelical revival. And when I read the accounts of both the experiences and the preaching of men like Whitfield and Wesley, and some of the other perhaps lesser known ones, uh, John Sinek, uh, Henry Venn, people like that, it, I find it to be very, very deeply challenging that you have men, again, who who seemed to possess a personal knowledge of God, which was, to use that word again that I used of Augustine, electrifying, and the sheer impact that was made by their preaching on multitudes. Uh, a simile came into my mind. It was like the heavens were opened 
and a stream of golden fire was poured out on people. And as I say, literally multitudes, myriads, were, were truly converted, I think. I'm thinking of the English um, sector here of the evangelical revival, which in America you would call the Great Awakening. So I, I really do find that to be, um, in, in one way, kind of disturbing, that I certainly don't see that in my own life and preaching and challenging in a wider way. When is volume five scheduled to come out? <laughs> well, the joke is that by the time it comes out, the title will be 3,000 Years of Christ. <laughs> um, but you know, there isn't actually a deadline. There's just me trying to write it consistent with um, the levels of energy that I have at the moment and uh, occasional kind of uh, encouragements, should we say, from the publisher. But no, there isn't, there isn't a specific um, deadline for it, I'm afraid. Well, I know I speak for James and, and uh, certainly speak for myself in giving you a genuine encouragement that we are looking forward to volume five. We, we were talking <laughs> before, you. You, before you came on about the number of people we know who have benefited from these volumes. And they really are, and, and I say this with sincerity, uh, the, the, the ones we recommend if anyone asks about mm. uh, church history volumes, so clearly written and yet well-researched and just uh, very, very helpful. So thanks, Nick, for being on with us today. And thank you for your ongoing work on well, again, uh, my, behalf of the my church. My pleasure to, to reconnect with you and blessings to you as well. well. James, it's always a delight to talk to Nick. And I know you and I were talking, as I alluded to at the end of the conversation with him, about uh, the value of his books. And it was not an exaggeration. We weren't puffing them up. It, these are genuinely the books we recommend for anyone who wants to dip their toe into church history. And there isn't a close second, actually. Um, four volumes so far, and they might look intimidating in terms of length, but they are they are lucidly written. Um, they are they are deeply researched, but Nick's writing style has a very light and accessible touch without sacrificing um, the real grist and detail of church history. And I think I would say without qualification for any interested layperson, and that's really who he's thinking about as he's writing these volumes, for any interested layperson, the four volumes, 2000 Years of Christ Power are without question um, what you've been looking for. You just didn't know it. Well, and I would also say, if you're going to teach church history, uh, go to these volumes. I mean, as, as clear as they are and as accessible as they are for any interested layperson, they are also well-researched and up-to-date and great in terms of the, the, the proportions that he gives to each era of church history. I mean, so that's a hard thing when you teach a survey to get it right, and he does. Personal testimony, I have seen these volumes within arm's reach of more than one church history professor's desk, uh, which is a clue. Yeah, my, mine are well-worn and often used. So anyway, that was a delight. And uh, James, it's always good to talk to you and to, uh, in this case, talk to Nick. We, we thank you to our listeners for, for listening in on this conversation. If you would like, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. We'd like to give you an opportunity to win a copy of a little book that we didn't talk about that Nick edited called The Early Church Fathers Daily Readings. So if you want to dip your toe again into the water, not just of church history, but in early church history, this is a good book to start with. Um, so go to the placefortruth.org site, then click on the Theology on the Go link. There will be a place for you to enter your information. If you're able to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org 
or placefortruth.org. Please pass the word along about the podcast to others. Rate us if you have a, a podcast server that allows for that. That helps us get out the word. And thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. This podcast is a service of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, thanks to member support. Your generosity and prayers enable the Alliance to provide more ways for Christians to read and hear the truth of God's Word. Alliance podcasts are reaching a new generation. Alliance websites like Reformation 21 and Place for Truth showcase the writings of today's leading thinkers. Reformed events are historic gatherings of respected Bible teachers, reflecting together on a common theme. And Reformed Resources brings it all together, offering trustworthy audio, video, books, and other materials to strengthen and grow your faith. Connect with it all at AllianceNet.org. Your financial support is urgently needed to keep this podcast online. So as you visit our website, select the green donate button and share your most generous gift. Join us in this powerful, practical ministry. We're the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church.